You are listening to National Security Law Today. Good afternoon. We are delighted today that Dr. Hamry has consented to come and spend some time with us for a brief chat about the future and the horizon in our world of national security. Quite literally, Dr. Hamry needs no introductions. It's hard to imagine. He's been running CSIS for almost 21 years now as the CEO. His career is a kind of a legendary career. I've served in the Department of Defense as the Deputy Secretary. He's been the controller. As you know, he's chaired the Defense Policy Board for a number of years. He comes from that with experiences from the Senate Armed Services Committee, where he was involved for a number of years. He also, extraordinarily, was also with the Congressional Budget Office, where he's Deputy Assistant Director for National Security. There's almost no senior policy job that exists in Washington that John Hamry is not sort of occupied. But more significantly, in Washington, there are very few people who mention their name. And the only thing that in response to it is, is a sense of admiration and acclamation. I put Dr. Hamry in the same school of, for those of us who remember, Judge Webster in our committee and at the agency, and Brett Scowcroft. So he is legitimately what we, I guess, characterize as the, one of the wise ones that has been in Washington for a number of years. And anything that's good coming out of Washington, usually John Hamry's fingers are somewhere <laughs> behind it. And if something goes bad, it's usually because we didn't consult Hamry to get his perspective. It's sort of the world I've lived in for the last 30 years. So with that, I thought we'd have an open discussion going forward. And four areas that we agreed we discussed would be sort of the general political process questions that we've been encountering in the last number of years. Uh, the famous problem of how to engage China, the issue of social media, surveillance capitalism, cyber incidents, and the future of policy innovation. So with that, John, could you give us a sense of your analysis of what has been happening in the general political process arena for the last decade? Uh, well, Harvey, thank you. I, I'm making a great mistake to even stay on the line after that introduction because I will disprove everything you said, you know, uh, but I'm, I'm flattered to be invited. Thank you. You know, each one of these four topics is so big, they could be the subject of a whole conference. But uh, so let me just be very brief. I, I think, you know, we've all watched with considerable horror, you know, what's happened over the last month or so. And, and it's just been so jarring. But in my mind, there's a deeper issue here. It really reflects a profound transition in the dynamics of the federal government. You know, we were a democracy, but we're a presidential system. And we've had our legislature has constitutional powers that make it an equal branch of government to the executive. But over the last 20 years, what we've really been watching is de facto conversion of a presidential system to a parliamentary system. We now are seeing the two parties behave really as the foot soldiers for the executive branch, either in opposition or in support. You know, it really took off in an accelerated way during the last four years, but we're seeing it now. I mean, just, just this morning, 
articles in the Post as Democrats trying to use the reconciliation process to try to pass climate change legislation. You know, that is not the work of an independent branch of government. This is now becoming, you know, the, it's adopting all the modalities of the Westminster system, the parliamentary system. And the problem is that the architecture of oversight, the architecture of authority is, you know, in national security world, really still is fundamentally grounded on the premise that the Congress is an independent branch of government. Now that is entering into question. I mean, we saw during the last administration, you know, the president just decided he wouldn't submit people for confirmation. You know, they'd be acting forever. He unilaterally fired four inspectors general. You know, and these are, in essence, officers of the Congress. If you really look at them, we've had essentially the undermining of independent agencies by not appointing people to serve in the governing boards of independent agencies. You know, and the Congress really was passive. So, I mean, I think the real challenge that we have is to think through is, is our constitutional structure with a Congress that has independent powers and authorities and, and jealousies, is that now lost to the hot demands of partisan politics? And frankly, that's to me is the bigger worry. Uh, I mean, January 6th was a great worry in many dimensions. This is the underlying worry. So, John, I think one of the questions is, I think during our political lifetime, we've seen a drift to extraordinary executive power and the role of executive orders as being a, a governing mechanism. And as you've pointed out, we've had a, a weakening of the historic congressional committee structure yeah. and this growth of money in American politics now yeah. and the gerrymandering. So what's the Dr. Hamry solution <laughs> To get out of this sort of position we're in. Well, uh, you know, look, this is, these are all the most complicated problems to fix. I mean, uh, the, the president's use of executive authorities really is not a sign of strength, but of weakness, you know, because they cannot get a consensus and mobilize support for an enduring policy change. So I, uh, but it reflects, it isn't that the presidency has gotten so strong, it's that the Congress chose to weaken itself. There were always two axes of power in the Congress. There was a horizontal axis, standing committees, and then there was a vertical axis, the political organizations. Well, um, I hate to say it, but the horizontal axis of standing committees was deeply undermined. And, it, you know, just to be honest, it went back when Newt Gingrich took away the seniority system. So members of the committees no longer had power from their substantive knowledge that they gained from tenure on the committee. When I first served in Congress, I was up opposite Ted Stevens. Ted Stevens had been <laughs> looking at defense budgets longer than I had ever been looking at them, and he knew more. Yeah. And it was, it was a frightening experience to go in front of Ted Stevens. It isn't frightening now, because mm -hmm. the, the substance of Congress has been badly eroded. Because mm -hmm. the only way you have power in Washington now is through politics, not through substance, if you're in the Congress. So how do we solve it? I mean, I know this is not popular, but go back to the seniority system. I don't revere gray hair. <laughs> they got a lot of it, but it isn't that. It's that the seniority system guaranteed that members of Congress 
had a parochial interest in their own power base in the Congress, rather than just being a derivative of their political support for their party. I resist the proposition Stevens knew more than you, but the idea of bringing back seniority, given my age, I find quite attractive. Um, I guess the other big general area is two dirty words in Washington, which is in order to engage China, do you think we need to think about an industrial policy? And what would that look like? Well, let's step back before we talk about industrial policy. We are entering into what I think is the sixth epoch of American foreign policy. We've had five distinct epochal periods, you know, of foreign policy in American history. The last one was the Cold War, and these last 20 years were really just an extension of the Cold War. But we are now profoundly in a new epoch. But all of our national security structure is still grounded in the Cold War competition with the Soviet Union. This new epoch is shaped by the great competition with China, and it is an economic powerhouse. The Soviet Union was never an economic powerhouse. Jesus, they, they never made anything anybody wanted to buy, you know, you know except... Well, those dolls, we all like to buy dolls. <laughs> yeah, and, and hockey players. Probably, but, yes. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, other than that, they didn't compete with us in any way economically. China, now this is different. I mean, they start with a consumer base that's four times as large as ours. 1.4 billion consumers, we got 340 million. We have 83 million millennials in this country. They got 350. They embrace state capitalism. Well, what does that mean? That means it's a corporation that doesn't have to make a profit. It doesn't have cost of capital. If they make a major investment, there's no return on investment obligations. You know, they compete against us and we've got our, we don't have our hands tied because we believe strongly in our system, but they have unbelievable advantages in, because of their approach. And they have weaponized access to their own economy. You know, our businesses want to be there because it's such a huge market. And of course, there's a political price for being there. So we, but our national security structure isn't organized to see this competition. You know, we're, you know, when we look at technology, we're looking, well, does, you know, is that going to go into a missile and how much faster can it fly and stuff like that? I'm talking about the profound economic competition that's underway between us and China over competing economic orders. And our national security system doesn't accommodate that. Now, with that as a starting point, I'll very quickly talk about industrial policy. You know, industrial policy has a black eye in America. We don't want to say we pick winners and losers. Politically, that's always been, you know, verboten. But we have done strategic industrial policy. We've just not called it that. Let's say Pete Domenici, 20 years ago, put $10 billion into the national laboratories to start the development of mapping the genome. The reason we get vaccines in one year now is because of an investment Pete Domenici made 20 years ago through the national labs. We spent $36 billion in the Department of Defense putting up GPS. Tell me a company today that isn't dependent on precise timing and positioning. Everybody is dependent on that. You know, Abraham Lincoln, his whole thing was creating, you know, land-grant colleges. That was industrial policy. We put railroads throughout the Midwest. That was industrial policy. We built the interstate highways. That was industrial policy. Right. We have to start developing a strategic attitude about the role the federal government plays to create the productive infrastructure 
that American business needs in order for us to succeed in this great competition. On that point, John, you mentioned before earlier when we were talking about the OSTP quantum project. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good example. I mean, the previous administration, the Trump administration, everybody has attitudes about it, and I certainly do too. But, you know, one thing you have to credit them for, they did some important things in innovation policy. One of them was to create five new centers of excellence in uh, quantum technologies. And it was a partnership. The federal government came up with a half a billion dollars. Each of the five universities had to create partnerships with the private sector and come up with their share, $500 billion. Uh, And they launched this. This is going to be a great thing for us. Another thing they did was they created quantum consortium. This is a Sherman antitrust-free zone for companies to get together, with, meet with the government, and talk about breakthroughs in quantum technologies. You know, the secretariat is out at SRI. You know, this yeah. is a good thing. So right. these are things we're going to have to do if we're going to succeed in this giant competition with China. Thank you for mentioning the Sherman Act, because that way they get legal credit <laughs> for people who are listening. And that's why you're here, is to explain why we need to overcome that. Um, the other large area that we wanted to get your thoughts on, and conveniently, uh, Senator Warner and Hirona and Globachar uh, announced the bill this morning, which they're calling the Safe Tech Act, which they're looking at safeguarding against fraud, exploitation, threats, extremism, and consumer harms act in relation to section 230 of the communications act, which is the safe harbor we've been discussing a bit in our conference. When you sit on uh, stride CSIS and see the social media issue and these issues of privacy, what is your approach that you think we should be taking in this large space? Well, you know, I think probably for 20 years here at CSIS, this has been a, a bit of a fixation. And I've watched how the issue has been neutralized every time it gets to the Congress, because all of the competing factions of interests in America found a committee to help counter another committee's initiatives. So we've made no progress in 20 years. And it is about the evolving rights of privacy, the evolving concepts of transparency and openness of government, the nature of data and who owns it uh, and under what conditions. You know, I give an enormous amount of information to Giant Foods, you know, so I can get little discounts, you know, but I'm, I'm not prepared to give enormous amounts of information to the federal government about my personal life. And the reason is, is that Giant gives me discounts, but they can't put me in jail. The federal government can. I mean, so I we have a different attitude about how we share information with the government. Now, what does it mean when the government buys commercial data? How do we yes. think about that? And under what conditions? You know, I, th- I think we need a very far-reaching conversation of, of fundamental debate and new ideas. And that will not emerge from the Congress. And the reason I say that is that you know, the, the business lobby, the privacy lobby, the, you know, the high-tech lobby, they've all found their paladins up in Congress to block any progress. This is one area where, honestly, the old-fashioned Blue Ribbon Commission hmm. would be helpful, where you take it out of that hot politics and try to create a compelling perspective that people can embrace for the first time and look at and understand. 
I, I think it's going to take something like that, Harvey. It's great because I think we have some staffers as part of the audience. So we have now created a new position for you as chair of this new commission. So it's always great when your answer provides a new sort of opportunity for you to help the country. But I, I, and as you know, it's been quite controversial. The DIA purchase was in the news recently. Oh. But as you said, we do not have a real way forward. And Judge Baker on his conference, uh, the panel just prior to us, was talking about AI and ML, what the principles should be, and how are we going to get a hold of it. So this is a major issue I think we need the policy community to wrap their mind around. Yeah, yeah. But the next big issue is the issue which we talked about, where is the future of policy innovation? Judge Baker's on watching, and he'll appreciate this. I think I will use this quote to you that Washington seems to be a city of 12 goalies and no puck. Uh, that is, you said, we know how to block things, but it's unclear how good we are at innovating things. So where do you see, you sit at a think tank, you've been involved in defense policy boards. Where do you see as the new centers of innovation that we should be encouraging? Giant bureaucracies will not invent new ideas. You know, giant bureaucracies take old ideas and make them more complicated. You know, that's, mm. that's what bureaucracies do. New ideas in our form of government come in either through political appointees or they come in through elected officials. I mean, that's how we get new ideas in the policy world in our form of government. That system works when politicians think they win elections by having better new ideas. But when politicians start thinking the way to win elections is to destroy their, the opponent, to prevent the other side from doing things, We've just undermined the fundamental dynamic that really propelled us forward for 100 years. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I personally, and I do hate to say this because I, you know, I run a think tank that is focused on the federal government. I think the federal government is going to be uh, frozen for a long time when it comes to policy innovation. And where I think you see policy innovation emerging now is in a very interesting dynamic that's emerging where you're seeing partnerships between state governments, powerful universities, and powerful corporations that will design a project that's really intended for that region and really has a capacity to transform things. And I think a good example of that is how you've seen state of Massachusetts become the biotech Silicon Valley, you know, of the 21st century. I mean, it is astounding. And that was very much the product of MIT, you know, partnering with a university, partnering right. with some companies right. and creating incubator structures that have now turned it into an incredible powerhouse up, up in Cambridge. That is, I think, going to be more typical of innovation going forward. Uh, so it's not going to be at the federal level. It's going to be yeah. at the state and local level. So if we create these like centers of excellence, like Lincoln Labs and the yep. Golden Triangle in North Carolina, and then we have Silicon Valley, and now it's happening in Miami. I guess one of the questions is, what are we going to do with pockets of excellence and growth and jobs? Yeah. Oh, and then boy. large pockets that seem to be not participating oh. in this world forward and it can be mobilized as we've seen in different political movements. So what's the, oh, what's the answer to that riddle? 
Harvey, that is, I, I rarely bring up the good work of my competitors when I give presentations. <laughs> but in this case, I, I have to because it was really important work. There was a very interesting analysis done by a guy over at Brookings after the election. We have about 3,000 counties in America. Biden won only 500 of the 3,000 counties. But those 500 counties contributed 70% of GDP in 2019. Now, that really reflects the point you just made. These pockets of dynamic intellectual growth and prosperity and cultural advancement is being concentrated in urban areas and pockets, and a lot of America is being left behind. You know, I did a, my, a, my own little personal look. I took the 10 most Republican states and the 10 most Democratic states, and this was based on the 2016 and 2018 elections, that, you know, the highest percent of Republican votes, highest percent of Democratic votes, compared the two 10 state blocks and the average per capita income in the 10 most Republican states was only 85% of the national average. Hmm. The per capita income in the 10 most Democratic states was 115% of the national average. 30 percentage points difference. Order. And that is a, that's a, un, unfortunately, this is going to be a pattern that shows a widening gap. Mm. You know, the, you know, you now have the city of New York is the 11th largest economy in the world. The state of California is the fifth largest economy in the world. You know, it's just astounding. But unfortunately, that means heartland America, rural America, Rust Belt America, is falling behind. Yeah. Now, what do we do about it? I go back to Abraham Lincoln. It's education. Mm. It's education, education. We got Excellent. to, we yeah. have to profoundly lift up the capacity of people in this country to compete in the new world. Great. Uh, we have about five minutes left and we have two questions which I'll sort of combine for you, John. One is that, you know, we, we clearly always focus on China and that Russia competition, but, you know, there are other major swing states such as India that are critical. So what is, should be our approach to these classic democratic states for alliances going forward? And then uh, we also have a question and based where you sit, do you see any particular legal policies you think you would like to see implemented or repealed in order to make us stronger in national security? Well, uh, first on, on the question of uh, India, India is a a large, sophisticated, complicated country. We have a lot of American national security types that think somehow we can lure India to be a pawn on our chessboard. And all I can tell you is every Indian guy is thinking that we're a pawn on their chessboard. I mean, you know, <laughs> they, 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 this is not an easy thing. We do have highly parallel interests, but they're not identical interests. So I think the most that we will get is collaborative structures, there's this thing called the quad, you know, it's, it's India, Australia, Japan, US, it's just going to be a collaboration coordination mechanism, that's as much as we're going to get, and then the rest is going to be bilateral. And we do a lot with India on a bilateral basis in the national security, but it's not going to grow into anything bigger than that in, in my in my personal view. On the question of policies that we should change, this just gives me an excuse to do a little diatribe. You know, I worked on the Senate Armed Services Committee, and I first started in 1984. And I remember the bill that we brought to the floor that year was five pages long. 
And three pages of it was about the competition between uh, for joint stars versus the TR1. So it's basically a two and a half page bill. The Armed Services Bill, the National Security Defense Act of last year was 2,200 pages of bill language. I mean, it, talk about off-base micromanagement. The government is now telling you, you know, what the camouflage pattern should be on fold-down toilet seat covers. <laughs> I mean, give me a break. You, you, the system of government is the executive branch establishes national priorities and, and directions, and the executive branch implements them. It, 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 and now it's, we've inverted this. I mean, this is just, this is nonsense. So in my view, finding a way to reestablish a pattern of trust between the Congress and the administration to back off from all of the micromanagement and, and then hold individuals accountable for their behavior and their performance. I mean, it's Perfect. not that hard, but it is, we're on the wrong track. So the upside, John, of that 2,200-page bill is just think of all the attorneys that are employed, uh, <laughs> trying to decipher and discern what exactly the Congress has meant. So that's the only thing from our profession we find. Um, okay, wrong audience. <laughs> <laughs> any last thoughts? As always, time flies with you, John. We're closing in on the last moment, but any last thought or Oh, I will be very brief. Uh, you know, I, these last two months have been really turbulent and quite disturbing. But if you step back and reflect, it's with enormous admiration that I have for the American judiciary mm. under the incredible public affairs assault that was lodged against the judicial establishment. Right. It stood strong. It held by principles of honesty, evidence, due process. It did not buckle in the winds. And I, I guess I have to say it's been a, quite a disturbing couple of months. But on reflection, I think these months have proven again the enormous vitality of rule of law in American society. And thank God it's grounded in an independent branch of government that still is observing its constitutional responsibilities. Well, thank you, John. You've been a huge supporter of the American Bar Association. Our entity and CSIS have worked together on a whole range of projects. And I, I know it's thanks to you and your deep commitment to this. So as always, I thank you on behalf of our committee, the ABA, and ultimately the Republic for the fact that you're still in here performing your extraordinary public service duties. So cannot thank you enough. And you have an open invitation and lawyers are lined up to, uh, I would say, represent you. So you know that that's a benefit of having uh, joined us today, and we can't thank you enough. So all the best thank for you the for weekend, and we look forward to seeing all you in real time post-COVID we can all get together. Thank you so much. Thank you. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 